Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. I'm really excited to introduce Terry Foy to the Philacrosophy podcast. Terry is the publisher at Inside Lacrosse. I've known Terry for, I don't know, it's been about 10 years now. And um, this guy is as passionate about lacrosse as anyone um, I've ever met, but he's also incredibly knowledgeable in the sense that Inside Lacrosse and Terry Foy have their fingers on the pulse of literally everything that goes on in the sport of lacrosse. And I'm really excited to bring to you guys his knowledge and, and uh, opinions and views on the sport currently. Uh, Terry, how's it going? It's going well, Jamie. I'm really happy to uh, have this conversation with you. Uh, I'm afraid for our listeners that it's going to be far longer than they uh, would otherwise want to commit to, because that's essentially what happens every single time you and I talk. Yep. And uh, yeah, I'm going to start. Uh, have you considered lacrosophy? Just dropping the phi in front of it? It's the study and science and love of lacrosse. Lacrosophy. I don't want to. I don't want to kick it off with a rebrand, but hey, if you're struggling with it, lacrosophy. It's 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 uh, it's one of these things that I think is hard to say, but it's it it's like more of it's a better read. Sure. I'm <laughs> I, I'm invested in that world. If it's better to read than hear and say, I'm gonna be all about it. So. Uh, right on, man. Well, yeah, there's a lot to get to. So thanks for the introduction. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's really cool to be able to uh, join you in this context because oftentimes I'm fulfilling your role. And, uh, you know, when you're the host, you want to shepherd the, your guests through, through the topics that they want to talk about. And I think, uh, you know, it, it's, fun to, it's fun to be the guest. Absolutely. So Terry, real, before we get started and see these topics that we have uh, outlined here, just give us a, a little bit of an idea of what the role of publisher is. Um, you've gone through a lot of roles. You've moved up the ranks at Inside the Cross. And uh, just give us an idea of like, you know, what you're sort of in charge of and what you guys uh, are trying to do. Totally. Yeah, so I mean, I started Inside the Cross in the fall of 2007. It was my first job out of college. I was the entry level, lowest ranking, lowest paid employee in the, in the office. And uh, at, at that point, I'd been pretty familiar with the business and the brand. I'd been, you know, around not really ever formally interning or even freelancing, but just like producing content for free for like four years. Cause I went to college in Loyola and it was like, you know, a couple miles away from the office. And I kind of wanted to get a sense of what that professional development opportunity was like. And as you said, I was passionate about it, right? Like I wanted to write articles about upper Arlington high school and whatever else they would publish. And so, um, so yeah, I started and I worked my way up through the content side over the course of the you know first five years uh, of the, the the job and became the managing editor, which essentially meant that I was responsible for creating the content calendar around the magazine. Uh, Inside the Cross was founded in 1996 as a paper newsletter that was bent to help people all across the country find out the scores of college lacrosse games. Uh, three years later, the internet was pervasive and that utility kind of evaporated. And a couple of years after that, Bob Carpenter, the founder, kind of reimagine the magazine as more like ESPN, the magazine. It was big, it was glossy, it was, you know, monthly. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was kind of the, the first large, big job I, I had here. Um, and uh, over the course of the subsequent two years, got involved a little bit more in some of the business side of the, of the company. And, you know, whether that was selling advertisements or 
talking about different types of event concepts or whatever else, um, you know, it set the table for, uh, you know, kind of bridging between 2014 and 15, taking over as the role of publisher. And essentially what it means is I'm in charge of the business. Um, we're a large or we're a subsidiary of a large company. So we get a lot of support, um, whether it's, you know, all that like kind of finance and HR stuff. Um, but also, uh, you know, we, we get a lot of autonomy and we can kind of do what we want to do. And so, you know, I think inside of the cross as a business is uh, separated into three parts. The first part is our content. And, you know, that's a little bit different um, depending on what medium you're consuming. We are still a magazine, but I think our strongest and most important asset is our website. Um, you know, we have the largest dot com in the sport. Um, it's also our social media pro, uh, platform. You know, we uh, have different strategies for Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, et cetera, YouTube, Snapchat, to whatever degree we have strategies for those. And then, uh, you know, other areas of con content that we produce as well. Um, podcasts, for example, something I'm really passionate around. Uh, second part of our business is, is running events. Um, and we have a couple different styles of events. Uh, the third part of our business, which is something that I think is really important to continue to grow, is data development. And so that's the part of what we're focusing on the most right now. You know, the, I, I grew up, the reason I was prepared for this job is because of Lax Power. Um, being able to familiarize myself with the scores uh, of, of who was beating who all across the country gave me a sense of the hierarchy, um, gave me a sense of where the good players were coming from, gave me a sense of the storylines. And so that coupled with the more in-depth information from the forums gave me a really healthy knowledge base as a 14, 15, 16 year old kid who was playing lacrosse in Cleveland, Ohio, but didn't really have much exposure to the game. And so um, with Lax Power's ceasing operations in August, not only did it create a market opportunity, it created a really important need for the sport. You know, I think lacrosse fans who don't follow other high school sports don't realize how unique and special a national high school scoreboard is. You know, Max Preps has become the market leader um, in statewide scoreboards. And, you know, depending on where in the country you are, the completeness of those uh, can be hit or miss. But there aren't national high school scoreboards in other sports. So what we had with Lax Power was really, really special. And that's before you even got to the fact that the formula was actually used by state associations to seed their playoffs, which is a really, really meaningful thing for kind of an independent third-party company to be doing, kind of without even, in some instances, their knowledge, I assume. Yeah. And so again, I think there's a, it was like a really valuable tool for the sport. And I think inside lacrosse is the only entity positioned to be able to fill that void. It's a huge job, you know, creating a, the, the, managing the data of a high school score is not difficult. It's five points of data, date, home team, away team, home score, away score. But the problem is the size. When you combine boys and girls, I estimate that there are about 75,000 high school games played each spring and they start uh, late January and they run through mid to late June. And so wrangling all that data is the job and doing so in an efficient way is the job. And so that's what we're setting out on. It's our biggest, I guess, corporate strategy uh, for 2019. And it sets up a lot of other stuff that I want to do on the heels of that. Awesome, man. Um, The Phil Acrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. I think I saw a tweet from Patrick McEwen, a.k.a. Lax Film Room, in the last month or two. 
that this is like a golden age for the sport of lacrosse. Yep. Um, and uh, with, with all the expansion and, and, and new things happening, uh, will you just touch on that a little bit and, and, and give us uh, an idea of your opinion on why this is such a great time for the sport? Absolutely. And to provide a little bit more context, I would say that this is kind of like the third golden era. The first golden era was, was in my estimation, and I've actually talked to our founder, Bob Carpenter, who, who's really passionate around this particular topic, you know, in terms of like the modern game and the way that it's been popularized nationally, the first moment was, was the gates, right? It was that bridge of late eighties, early nineties, you know, when the sports started ending up on TV a little bit more frequently, et cetera. The second golden era I mark as the NFL stadium final four era. So say 2003 to 2007, when attendance at that event was, was increasing such a dramatic way that it was getting a lot of attention. And so the reason that this moment in time, which I would say started in some point in 2017, is so important is because the intervening 10 years, basically since the plateauing of, in 2008 of the Final Four attendance, is because there's been a lot of kind of unhealthy things that have happened to the sport of lacrosse over this span, span of time, really the entirety of my tenure at Inside Lacrosse. And so, um, you know, without getting into too much detail on that, uh, you know, essentially the sport has grown tremendously at a participation level. Um, but from a business standpoint, it hasn't kept pace in a lot of instances. Um, a lot of new entities have entered the market and have created, you know, some sustenance in, in terms of the year over year ability to operate, um, but haven't necessarily been so powerful that they've been able to actually compel and move the sport forward. And so the reason I consider this to be a golden age in the sport of lacrosse is because four things have happened that at some point over the course of time, you would have thought to have been almost impossible. And it started for me with the recruiting rule legislation. You know, I think that that helped to create some more stability in what is the biggest sector of the sport, you know, that participation level sector of the sport. And I think that prior to the recruiting rule changes, there was so much fervency around that, that it was actually turning a lot of people off. So I think that was foundational. The second thing that happened was the, um, and, the and then, the, the, you know, these kind of two intervening things uh, that, that I'll get to last. Second thing that happened was the announcement that Utah was adding men's lacrosse. Um, it was important in one way because it closed the gap, uh, the gap in time between FBS universities adding men's lacrosse um, from 30 years between Notre Dame and Michigan to six, seven, depending on your start point, between uh, Michigan and, and Utah. And not only that, it represented further expansion west. It, create, it helped to create like the nationalization of the game. And in addition to that, it created um, a plan or a method. Of, you know, what Utah did and the, and the path they took to add men's lacrosse is replicatable. It takes a lot of money, but it, can, but it was something that can be replicated in a way that I don't think the Michigan model could be, you know, because that was a 20-year commitment. The two most recent things that were really significant were the recognition of the uh, Federation of International Lacrosse by the International Olympic Committee, uh, which put lacrosse on an accelerated path towards potentially participating in the, in the Olympics. Um, I've targeted, and everybody has talked about, uh, the 2028 Games in LA as being a realistic op opportunity. And then the last um, and most, well, not most recent, but the, the, I guess, most immediately significant was the October announcement of the formation of the Premier Lacrosse League. So I think the reason that those four things in conjunction are so important is because it's a top-down total reimagination of what the sport of lacrosse is, right? So you have the pinnacle of the Olympics and professional lacrosse being kind of reevaluated and reconsidered. You have college lacrosse, which for so long has been 
the leading part of the sport expanding in a meaningful way. Obviously, we've seen this at a tremendous rate on the women's side, but the, 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 the point and the problem there is the, the, the perception that it's impossible to happen on the men's side, and Utah showed that it's not impossible. And then the last is affecting a much more grassroots component of the game, the recruiting rule legislation, which I think is going to go a long way towards, you know, stabilizing the prices for club teams, um, you know, creating a little bit more of a consistent path of entry for new markets to be able to play lacrosse at a way that's a little bit more competitive than rec, but not as crazy as some of the most expensive club opportunities. And so, you know, I, I just, I look around and I, it, I don't think that, the stakeholders have really felt the benefits of this yet because I think the tail is really long, but I, I look around and I say, you know, it, it, again, it, I would have been laughed at if I had proposed even one of these three or four things in 2015. And the fact that they've all come to fruition in such a short span of time is really meaningful. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, yeah, the, the recruiting legislation, I, I agree so much. It, it, it was so much undue pressure on kids and I've gone through it as you know, as a coach, I've gone through it as a as a as a, as a guy who owned a, a club program in 3D lacrosse, as, as well as a dad. Um, I've looked at it from the perspective of an early bloomer, a late bloomer, and a daughter who's a 2021 currently. And it's been so great not to have to worry about recruiting one way or the other. You know, and and it was a turnoff. I watched kids quit quit playing the sport because they didn't get recruited and they felt so bad about it. And they were wasting their parents' money and all this stuff. And, you know, it was really sad. Um, the Utah thing so exciting to get a Pac-12 team. You know, hopefully more of these dominoes will start falling. Um, and um, the Olympics piece, I would love to have you go into a little bit more detail on, on what, you, what you think the game is going to look like. There's been so much talk about you know, what the rules are going to be. What's your opinion on what you think it's going to be as, and what, what you think it should be? Yeah, well, so if you'll indulge me, you know, I, I kind of want to give you, and I told you so, not you, but like the lacrosse community, because in January of 2017, I wrote an article that the headline was something along the lines of, lacrosse will be in the 2028 games, and it's going to change the sport in huge and unforeseen ways. And one of the things that you and I share dearly is our relationship with Dave Huntley. And this is something that I had spoken extensively to him about in the months leading up to his death, which was a month prior to that article having been posted. And the reason was because he was so, so ultimately, you know, there are a handful of considerations relative to what Olympic lacrosse or, or the future of international lacrosse um, is or should be. And I think that it starts in two places. One, field lacrosse, international field lacrosse rules right now are horrible. And number two, lacrosse is unique in the fact that it has three distinct disciplines, men's lacrosse, indoor lacrosse, and women's lacrosse, all of which have distinct differences, and none of which have like a, more, a greater claim on the origin of the game than the other. And like the origin of the game is a really important and cherished thing, right? So that point is important because I think it means that there's opportunity to experiment and come up with version, a version of the game that satisfies another goal. And in this instance, the goal is what the IOC has laid out, which is the things that they care about from a local hosting opportunity, right? Like the biggest challenge that the IOC has faced is they're not getting as many cities bidding to host as they did 20 and 30 years ago, because the legacy of hosting the games is not as good as it was, right? Like you have, you know, these, these cities that invest so much in hosting and then, you know, the Olympics are over and they can't utilize a lot of the stuff that they had built. So the IOC has tried to make changes to make hosting the games a little bit more appealing. And one of the things that they've done is given 
the host a little bit more leeway to choose which sports are participated if there's a sport or sports that are particularly meaningful for that market. And that's where the opportunity in LA comes in. In order to, other considerations that they've made on this point about making it easier to host is they set the cap on the number of, of athletes, right? And so having a small roster is to a sports benefit because it means that you don't need to put as many players in the Olympic Village. The second consideration is the venue. If you can play your game on a field that another field can play its game on, that makes it easier to add, right? And so that is all about size. Now, lacrosse doesn't really have to worry about it because we can play on a soccer field. But then the question becomes, all right, well, how would it be scheduled? And then because the soccer, you know, if you, if you look at Olympic soccer, like they play in multiple venues, they typically are pre-existing. They're not that close generally to where the, the games are being played in, in, you know, the most part, whatever. Um, and then the last thing is TV windows. And um, if your game can be uh, scheduled with regularity, meaning like, you know, how long it's going to last. And if it can be short and really dynamic and really appealing to bringing in new audiences, those three things are really in your favor. And so those are the three priorities that the lacrosse stakeholders, the folks from the FIL level on down, are going to take into consideration as they consider a new version of the game. And, and, and then there is also a fourth component, which I think is kind of gets to be, it kind of goes without saying, which is player, player health and safety. Um, and I guess kind of there's a fifth component, which is a part of that as well, which is scalability, right? So it's like, how easy is it to have your sport be adopted in places that it's not being played right now? And so, you know, for all those reasons and thinking about all those things, you know, I think there are a couple of no-brainers. Number one, men's and lacrosse, men's and women's lacrosse will be played with the same number of players on the field and the same dimensions of the field, meaning that, you know, the, the boundaries will be the same, which is not currently the case. The creases will be in the same place, et cetera. Um, I don't expect there to be additional lines. I think it's going to be a very simple field, um, a crease and a midline. I would expect that to be the only lines that there are on the field. Um, it's easy to stall international lacrosse. Like games are decided by how effective you are at stalling. I think that's going to be removed one way or the other. Um, shot would obviously be the likely outcome, right? Um, and then, it, it, you know, the, the idea of that kind of most appealing opportunity is in the model is rugby sevens right so rugby union is 15 on 15 rugby sevens is seven on seven they play two seven minute halves it's an incredibly fast-paced game it almost doesn't really resemble real rugby and then as a result there are some rugby purists and traditionalists that don't like it but i can tell you definitively that when rugby was done in rio i was captivated and not only that it was played in the first like five days of the tournament and i was like oh man this sucks it's over like I, there's like two more weeks of the Olympics to go and no more rugby. I, this is a, such a bummer. And that's exactly what the IOC wants to hear when they add, when they add sports. And so that's what I think the opportunity is for lacrosse. And I think that those are going to be like the considerations. You know, one thing that I think is, is like at the most aggressive end of the spectrum is um, it's really expensive to ship long poles internationally. So I wouldn't be surprised if the version of the game was all short sticks. And then the second health and safety and scalability Helmets and head injuries are a huge issue, and I think that uh, I, I think that we should at least be open to the idea of men playing a game where they don't wear helmets. And I don't expect it to have much legs, but if it does, you can't play with the pocket as it currently is. And one of the things that the IOC is going to ask when we put this game forward, if the men's stick and the women's stick are, are, are played with as is, they're going to ask why they're different. And it's going to be a difficult question to answer. And if you play 
with a men's stick, then you have to wear a helmet because the ball is going too fast. It will, it will, you know, it'll bring about serious bodily harm. You know, when women get hit in the head with shots, it's really bad news. If the ball is going 40 to 50 miles an hour faster than the fastest woman's shot is, then it's even worse news, obviously. Um, but the reason I evoked Dave's name at the start of this conversation is because he was a proponent of the, this type of aggressive thought. And he was so well respected um, that I think he would have helped build consensus in a way that in his, in his absence, it's going to be really hard to do. And I think, you know, folks like you and Brownie are going to actually, you know, have an outsized voice, you know, in, in, in kind of how this conversation unfolds, because you kind of span the gamut of indoor and outdoor lacrosse in a way that not a lot of people do. And it'll be really interesting to see how that conversation proceeds in that way. It seems like they might as well just play box across in some ways. I mean, you know, why not? Uh, Cause boxes are really expensive because they can't get rinks. No, I mean, it's just like, you can't do it in, you can't get a ring to South, South America. You can't get a ring to Africa, right? It's not about getting it to the Olympics. Like, yeah, that's easy. But yeah. it's about like building these venues in places when it's not the Olympics. Right. Yeah. I mean, if I was to think about the game that I would like to see, I would like to see a seven on seven game on a shorter field with uh, two, either two, three, two or two, two, two as far as middies, uh, D middies attack. Yep. Um, so let's say it was two, three, two. Then you go with uh, two or three long pulls. Um, shot clock, probably like a 30 or 40 second shot clock. Um, how long think. would you want it to be between goals? Like, like goal line to goal line. How, what would you want? The, what do you this think is an appropriate distance? Um, probably 60. That was what I was thinking. So far, everything you've said, I agree with. I would like to figure out a way to have um, – you can't construct boards, but if you could put behind the goals some kind of a netting system that allowed the ball to stay in play after a shot. I don't think you need it on the sidelines, but I think – Well, okay, so here's out. an interesting consideration. So when U.S. Lacrosse did their experimental game um, or uh, exhibition, whatever, um, the day after uh, Yale played the U.S. national team, it was just the U.S. national team doing a blue-white scrimmage. Um, Missed shots that went over the end line were went to the went the other way. The def, the defense was awarded the ball in that instance. Yeah, I don't love that um, because I think it's more fun to watch the offense. I'd rather watch that than more clears, you know. And I think you, you know, I mean, I, I get it. It's, it's not a terrible rule, but but I think you know people like watching offense, and I think watching a lot of shots in a in a given possession is pretty cool. Um, and um, but um, to be able to keep the ball in bounds though makes it more fun too because then it's just it's in play. Yeah. And it's not dangerous. Um, you know, if you have net, some kind of a netting system, if you fell into it, it really wouldn't matter. Um, and the ball would stay in play, and you'd be able to uh, – it would just be, fast, be a faster game, and it would bring a little bit of that. Um, and then um, I think that, you know, the, the speed of the game would be fun. I think you'd get everything you wanted out of it, um, and I think that it would be better for television because it would be smaller and tighter. So mm -hmm. those are the things that I've sort of thought about. Now, um, but, but – um, that's incredibly interesting stuff as it relates to, to your thoughts on what the Olympic committee wants and where the game could go. And where do you think the impact will, what do you think the impact will be internationally and in our country? If, if in fact it goes and there's Olympic lacrosse in 2028. Well, so I, I, it's completely different in the United States versus the rest of the world um, right. for two reasons. Number one, because the rest of the world lags so far behind the United States in terms of lacrosse participation. And number two, because the way the majority of countries outside of the United States have set up their 
um, sports infrastructure is through governmental funding, or there's a lot more available governmental funding um, than there is in the US, or, or the percentage of sports money comes from the government. Um, and there's basically, it's, it's, a, it's a binary thing. Like, is your sport in the Olympics or is it not? Yeah. If it's not, you can't access this funding. If it is, you can. And yeah. uh, that has, you know, the, the additional effects of, you know, charitable donations and corporate sponsorship as well. So I think it's going to be huge. And I, you know, and I say this not because I know, I say this because really smart people like Jim Share, the CEO of the FIL, has said that this is the most substantial outcome. But the thing is that like lacrosse doesn't need to be in the Olympics in order for the, like lacrosse doesn't need to be a competitive sport in the games in order for this thing to have already happened. Like those associations can start, like the Irish Lacrosse Association can start trying to access like Republic of Ireland sports ministry money now by virtue of what happened in November. So that's the first thing. And it's because uh, that money can be spent any number of ways, but like, think about it more creatively than just buying equipment, which I think is the way that most people think about it. Like it can allow you to pay for folks to fly in and play against you. It can allow you to play in or pay coaches to come in and coach you coaches or refs to come in and rep your games. If that's a big need, um, it can allow your talent to travel elsewhere in order to be able to compete or learn. Um, you know, the, the, the continued opportunities for development are so much more substantial. It can allow you to spend that money to event, to rent fields. Um, if field space is an issue in your, in your area, like there's so many different ways it can, you can use that money, um, for publicity campaigns to drive awareness and participation of your game in your local market. Like it relies on a person in that local market who knows how to access the funds and then how to utilize them. But if they do so effectively, then anybody who believes that spending money on a problem can help solve it should be really excited about what this opportunity yields. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean, if, if all these countries, you know, what are there, 45, 46 countries currently? Um, 68. 68 now. Wow. Okay, so I'm waiting. I'm like, I'm, I'm using There were 48 that participated in Israel in the World Games, but there were 60, there are 68 recognized nations as of yesterday. Uh, Puerto Rico and Peru, I believe, were the, the two most recent additions. Nice. So, so with all of these countries able to then access, you know, uh, sport ministry funds, um, yeah, obviously everything from coaches' salaries to, to the, to the, for people that, and, and, and the motivation for people just to want to play the sport because it just validates the sport. You, know? you can like, represent your country. Why, and like, why would I do that? Right. And yeah. you can get it in this country. It's very different because you can play in high school and you can play in college and there's a lot of awesome reasons, but there, there's no, there's very little money in the sport um, anywhere else, but in this country, really. So that's uh yeah, it's really exciting stuff. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com. Um, switching gears to the PLL. Um, why, why is that such a, a massively important um, deal for our sport? And where do you see that? You know, how, how does it manifest itself? I think that answer is going to change as time moves forward. But for right now, the reason it's so significant is because the amount of Wall Street investment that's gone into it and the presumption of diligence and belief that follows that money, right? So, you know, there have been 
rumors about what the value was, but certainly the stakeholders have been, you know, clearly identified, um, whether it be Rain, CAA, Chernin, or Blum Capital, the four big, you know, entities that, that PLL has pointed to as being their kind of foundation level investors. Um, those are huge, sophisticated companies that carry a lot of respect and a lot of weight on Wall Street in the sports space, in the media space. So as a result, it's brought a lot of attention throughout the rest of Wall Street as to why. Why are they making this bet right now? And, you know, so for lacrosse businesses and other businesses who are interested in lacrosse, it's incredibly meaningful because of, you know, what it, what it does um, and the activity that creates around the commercial part of the game. Um, but beyond that, I think the biggest reason that it's meaningful is because, you know, people will point to the value of competition, right? Like it raises the level of professional lacrosse. Um, and I, I buy that, right? That's not an insignificant consideration for sure. But the thing that I think is most meaningful is I'm a believer in PLL strategy for creating new fans. And uh, I think that they're going to do a really nice job at it. And I think they're going to do it more creatively than it's ever been done before. You know, because of my understanding of media at the time, I didn't really, I kind of snickered and didn't really, snickered at and didn't really understand like what it meant for, you know, Xander and Max Ritz and Scott Hawks had to be on the hills when they were pushing Alex M, right? Like it was like, oh, what's the value of that? But, and maybe it's a function of the way in which the culture has changed in the six or seven years since then, but that matters a lot. Like I look at sports media and I'm like, the, the, the fact that like the WWE ecosystem has like four or five shows on E, the E network, it's it's almost as meaningful for the way in which their athletes are being portrayed as celebrities as Monday Night Raw is. And I'm not saying the PL is going to get to that level, but they're going to, they're going to create the type of content that is consumed that way. They're going to, you're going to see it on YouTube. You're going to see it on some of the OTT platforms that I'm sure that they're going to develop relationships with. You're going to see it on these players, individual social channels. And so as a result, like, the, the people who are seeing this content and engaging with this content, whether they're, you know, the example I use is like, um, like Gerard Newman is, is a, uh, a defenseman from Providence who um, I believe is, is two years removed. And, you know, he has a, a good social media following on Instagram and, and I believe on Twitter as well, you know, and, and how does his following overlap with say Marcus Holman's or Trevor Baptiste's and, I think that there's probably some overlap because there are lacrosse fans who just follow like famous lacrosse athletes. It's been, of course, you know, but there's also their own personal networks, their friends, their family, their friends of friends, you know, the people that they met one night at a bar in college, whatever. And those people are going to be exposed to this in a way that they otherwise wouldn't be. And that's the power. I think that the ability to aggregate at that network as much as possible and show them that they that those people should be lacrosse fans, not just because it's a beautiful game to watch on TV, which I think NBC Sports is going to do an excellent job of. I'm a I'm a real I'm an avid Premier League consumer, so I'm a buyer in the way that NBC Sports approaches their properties. Um, but in addition to that, you're going to create like a connectivity uh, to these athletes in a really meaningful way, and that's why the WPL partnership was such a no-brainer to me because not only do you take your male athletes and you humanize them by bringing in you know a women's sport to the ecosystem but also you expand that uh that content distribution platform and the aggregated social network uh even more broadly because there's less redundancy and less overlap with those 120 athletes or 80 athletes social media platforms so 
I just think that their opportunity to create new fans once they start playing in June is going to be really, really substantial. So right now it's the commercialization on Wall Street. Starting in June, it's going to be the ability to create new fans. It's pretty, um, it's pretty impressive, to say the least, what Paul Rabel's been able to do in, in really learning and kind of mastering, you know, digital marketing um, and then applying it to this concept um, and getting this all off the ground. It's just, it's so well thought out. It's really, really impressive just the way that he's gone about this and it's leveraging a, a tool that he got on before most everybody else. Um, and it works in, in, in all of these, you know, everywhere you turn around, there are people that are leveraging um, digital marketing in a way that Paul's been doing it. And now he's going to, he's going to scale it is basically what you're saying across all of these athletes and tell all of their stories. And you're right. I mean, my, 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 my daughter doesn't watch much TV. She watches YouTube. She watches yep. bloggers. She watches shows. And it's likely that the personalities uh, are going to manifest itself throughout the average U S boy and girl that's just is watching YouTube. Totally. Totally. Really impressive. Um, all right. Great, great talk on the golden age of lacrosse. I think one of the big things that's happening to make lacrosse better is the rule changes in NCAA lacrosse. I mean, I no think, question. honestly, you know, when I would watch lacrosse games, I would have my finger on the fast forward button, you know, for, I don't know, it seemed like 20 or 30 or 50 seconds of every single possession. And there was like, whatever, 30 possessions per. So half the game I, I wasn't even watching. And it was painful to watch throwing it around in circles. Um, it, was the equivalent, it was the equivalent of free throws in basketball. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it was, it was just, it was even worse because sometimes three free throws are like meaningful. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. You're, you're right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but tell me where, what you think about the rules um, and, and, um, and any other thoughts as, as it, how it manifests itself this, this year in 2019. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I can go a couple different directions. This is one of the things um, that I'm still – so when the season starts and people see the rules, like a lot of folks who weren't paying attention in August are going to be like, oh, my goodness, how did this happen? And I think you're going to see a uh, – I don't know, the, the bubbling up of, of what some of that criticism was um, in August. And so I just kind of want to address that real quick because – the comment that I saw not infrequently that sat the worst with me was why did we need to do this? Like, why did it need to change? And your point is well taken relative to the frequency of just throwing the ball around with no intent to score and what it meant. There were, there were definitely improvements made over the intervening six years from 2012 to 2018 when in 20, you know, for in August of 2012 for the 2013 season, the invisible shot clock was instituted. Um, that's not the, that's not the argument. The argument is not that the game wasn't better than it was when it was at its worst. The argument is that when the decision was made to put the invisible shot clock in, it was never meant to be a permanent solution. It was meant to be an incremental step toward a full possession clock, which is what this is. And it is a permanent solution. Now it can be tweaked. I mean, we saw the NCAA basketball change their shot clock from 35 to 30 seconds after having a shot clock for like 35 years. It's not to say that there won't be future changes, but it's that this is what the ideal was. This is what the goal was always to get to. And so that's my first point. And it has so many different consequences. Um, you know, folks are going to make the argument about like, you know, end of game situations are not going to be as exciting because you're going to have to foul now because their team can stall. 
you know, for 60 seconds or however many on a restart or 80 seconds or whatever. And, you know, okay, that's fine. You know, we're sacrificing that for the death of the two minute possession. And that's really important, but it's certainly not the only change, right? The other two, the other two significant changes are going to be really significant. I think, um, to varying degrees and for varying reasons. So, you know, I kind of poo-pooed how important the shrinking of the substitution box was in the moment um, because I was thinking about it more from the reason that it was instituted or explained when it was instituted, which was it, it was a health and safety issue, right? Like it was trying to avoid collisions in the substitution box uh, when players are running off the field. Um, you know, opening up the space from 10 yards to 20 yards uh, was going to reduce that issue. And I was like, I've never seen a collision in a sub box. It's not a big deal. Yeah. You know, there is the small issue of of like, fighting essentially <laughs> like the benches being closer together guys having a, a, guys being able to use the excuse of trying to get to the cone um as a way to jockey for position when they're running off the field all that sort of stuff but you know that's not insignificant but it's also not that significant particularly because the impact that it's going to have on the game is going to be really significant because this is the way that that i think about it when you were subbing from off or like when you were you know, when when you were when the other team was clearing and in transition, like in full stride, able to, to get going, basically on the precipice of a fast break, and you were trying to get your defensive, offensive personnel off the field and defensive personnel on the field, yep. you gained 20 yards. Because in the front door, out the back door, was a 20-yard difference from where the players were. Now you gain 10, and you lose five on either side. And when you look at the angle that the players are typically going to rerun off the field at, it's like a one and a half second difference from what the old situation was. So it's a really like, it, it, there are going to be a lot fewer fast breaks cut off by the guys subbing on than there were last year. And right. that is, that, that's going to be really interesting to follow. And then the dive, it's such an interesting consideration for me because it's essentially the best end of shot clock shot, right? Like it's an, it's the, the reason not to dive is because the risk is high. You can turn the ball over. But, and obviously there's been a lot of conversation around the lack of specificity relative, relative to defining the goal mouth and making contact with the goalie, et cetera. And I hope that that gets sorted out. Yeah. But, but adding the dive changes the geometry of where a player can dodge from and be a threat in a significant way. It changes the approach angle that as a defender – you have to take to a, goal, a, a dodger, a ball carrier from below GLE. And then secondly, in those end of shot clock situations, when otherwise you might be tempted to either attempt a, you know, kind of desperation 14-yard uh, step down, or if you're fortunate, or a shot with a stick in your hands, or roll the ball into the corner, now you can add a dive as a third desperate attempt, and what's the worst that happens? You turn the ball over, it goes the other way. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting tactically to see how it's utilized. And I also think it's going to be really um, illuminating. I think it's going, to, it's going to shed a lot of light on, you know, who these players are as, as uh, I don't know what the right word is, like courage. You know what I mean? Like it, like you get, it hurts to, and to, to, to dive in a way that you could potentially score on either get hit or end up on the, on the, on the ground. Like it's not a pleasant experience. So a lot of guys aren't going to want to do it. And those who, it's going to be interesting to see who wants to dive and who doesn't. So I, I, I'm just, you know, I think more than anything else, I'm really excited and energized by the new rules. And I'm really 
fascinated by the unknown because I think that there are a lot of unknowns. Um, and as I've thought more about the knowns or at least the rational outcomes, um, I, I've liked pretty much everything I've thought about. I agree with you hundred percent. The knowns are like we said at the beginning, it's just going to be more fun to watch everybody trying to score. <laughs> That's the, you just can't argue with that one. You know, as far as how it manifests itself, I mean, uh, you know, some people think there's going to be more two-way middies. Some people will say that, you know, it's going to be more offense-defense. You know, box lacrosse has got an even shorter shot clock, and they don't play two-way guys. They play offense-defense. It's all about efficiency, and, and I think it kind of still will be. I, I, but I think the teams that liked to play two-way middies in the past will probably still like to play two-way middies. And I agree with you. There will be more breaks. I do think that, Terry, when the, when the rule was proposed to make it a 10-yard – 20, you know, 10 yard box to a five yard box on each side. Um, I think they thought there was going to be more transition in it back. Yeah. I recall. So, I mean, I think that, that, um, you know, and it took, it took us a while. How many years was it in, in there? 10 years or something like that? No, I think it was six. I think it was part of that 2012 implementation. I yeah. think I'm not positive. I remember, I remember talking to Frank Federacher about it at a, at a convention. I just don't remember which convention it was. So. Yeah. There's been a few. Uh, I think the dive, I think the dive is a big deal because you're going to have to slide to things sometimes that you wouldn't have had to otherwise slide to, which is going to create offense, which is great because the, the shot clock is really a defensive rule. I yeah. mean, you know, so to be able to have uh, an offensive advantage is helpful to semi-balance it out. Um, I think the way it's called is going to really dictate how, how – good of an offensive rule it truly is I mean it's going to be you know if all of a sudden people are getting uh one minute unsportsmanlike fouls because they dove that wouldn't be great uh so it's going to be you know the whole ice cream cone concept that came out of the IMLCA was was interesting um so we'll see how that evolves my guess is they'll figure out a way to call it better and it will be better um and um so do you think I remember when the first rule first came out we were talking about you know, it's going to eliminate riding, but I know there's a lot of schools that are working really hard at their riding. So what's your take on, on that? Do you think there's more of just get off the field, get your personnel on, or do you think there's going to be more riding, or do you think it's going to be if you like to ride in the past, you're probably going to still like to ride now? Yeah, I think that um, more broadly than just on the topic of riding, I think that uh, the shot clock in general is going to um, create more. I think, I think everything is just going to be amplified. Um, and, and I say that because I say that for two reasons and I have a question for you. So the first reason is because there's just more possessions. So that means that like there's more volume. And the second reason is because the shot clock creates like, it creates like a, a barometer or a benchmark where like we can do this until this, and then we do this and then we can do, you know what I mean? So it's like one of the things that you heard a lot about was junk defenses or, or, you know, switching within possessions. And I think that, you know, that's going to be something that people do like instead of playing one, one defensive, style on a possession you can play two or three um you know switching in and out at basic times in the shot clock and that whether or not that's a winning strategy obviously remains to be seen it's depend it depends on how effective it is uh, and how well executed it is but um but that's that's my overall take so so to the question about riding in particular um yeah i'm sure that there will be teams where that ride way more aggressively than they did because they know that clearing the ball in 20 seconds is really hard and if you can force that third cross field pass you're essentially putting your team you, you know your opponent in a position where they have to gilman um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't have a strong opinion on that, but I, I, that is kind of my baseline expectation. But the question I have for you, you made the comment relative to the two-way middies and the increased, uh, kind of use of, of, of offensive and defensive specialists. So because there's going to be more and the field didn't get smaller, there's going to be more fatigue. 
fatigue will be a greater issue at, I think, both ends of the field, right? Because you're not going to get the two-minute breaks where the ball's at the other end of the field if you're on the non-doing-something end. Um, and then, obviously, for the guys that are running from one end of the field to the other, they're going to have to do it faster, and they're going to do it more frequently. So because of fatigue, and let's take attackmen and defensemen out of this and just focus on midfielders for, for the time being. Because of the increased fatigue, I can see this going one of two ways. Either so, – so say in the past – um, a team would play uh, like say 11 midfielders would get on the field in a competitive game. And of those 11, uh, uh, seven or eight would have an offensive possession um, or would play offense, right? Like, like, like three or four would only play defense or clear or play wings. Um, and the, obviously the distribution of minutes was, was pretty broad, right? Like, so your first midfield, offensive midfield line um, played probably 60% of the offensive runs. Your second midfield played 30% in the last midfield, which was a hybrid typically. You know, it wasn't going to be three new guys. It was going to be a hodgepodge of, uh, it was going to, you know, play 10%, so roughly two or three runs. Um, and then the same thing with your short stick D-Midi. There are obviously teams that felt pretty good about their third and fourth shorty or their third shorty. And, and so, you know, they would get – it would probably be closer to 50-50 in that instance or whatever. So my question is, do you, do you think that this is going to manifest itself in, you know, that 9, 10, 11 guy instead of maybe being on the field for four to five minutes the way he was in prior years is now going to be on the field for 20 minutes? Or do you think it's going to manifest itself in guy 12, 13, 14, 15 getting on the field in competitive games where previously he only got on the field in, you know, kind of garbage time? Well, I think, I think that the ratio was generally first line gets more than 60% for a lot of teams, okay? So I think it was probably more like maybe 80-20. Um, and I think that it's going to be more like 60-40 now. I don't know how many third, line, third lines people are going to have. If you've got a lot of depth and you can do that, it's happened over the years, but it usually doesn't. But I think now you actually might see – you know, a 60-30-10 uh, split, and you might get that 13, 14, 15th committee out there. I think you you always kind of have a, had to have minimum three shorties. Probably going to have to have, you know, you're probably going to have to have four. So I, I, I think that the biggest uh, manifestation is going to be that your first line is just not going to be able to, you know, remember Seabold, Glenn, and Rocco Romero. <laughs> they played 90%. Virginia teams, they would always play, like, their first midfield would play, like, the whole game. Um, last year, you know, Carolina, their first midfield played most of the game. I mean, it's, it was just something that you'd be looking around. I just think the second lines are going to have to play a lot more. The, the first line's just not going to be ready to get on the field immediately upon getting a ball back with how hard they're going to have to play. There's not going to be a, hey, let's get out there and rest for two minutes and then run our set. So I think that's going to be kind of how it goes, in my opinion. And as far as the other pieces too, that was interesting, you're talking about junk, junk defenses and things like that. You know, I think that it's going to be interesting to see because obviously if you, if you know that there's an offense out there that can't adjust for whatever reason, they don't have the depth to be able to adjust to play zone or man or pressure or shutoffs. I think you're going to see a lot of things. I think people automatically sort of figured that it would be like uh, you know, zone that they would play. I, I think there's probably going to be more pressure um, because it, it used to be that it, it was hard to pressure in the sense that if someone could break it, eventually it would just, you'd wear yourself down. And there was they, no reward. What's that? 
there was no reward. The only reward for pressure was getting the ball on the ground, but it was hard to do that. So the, the yeah. risk reward ratio was so low. Although, it, you know, look at the national championship, how did Duke get, get back in the game? You know, I mean, Duke does, Duke traditionally has been one of those teams that gets out and pressures you and it works. Pressure works. Uh, but you're right. It was like diminishing returns over the course of an entire game because eventually you just wore yourself out. So you're correct. And the reward was difficult. Now, you can get out and pressure in all different ways, whether that's uh, whether that's d- doubling on the end line and shutting people off, like a you know sort of uh, those red dog situations, or whether it's shutting a person off, or whether it's put a pole on the third best midi and then and then pressing out on them and making them do something to kill clock. Whether it's jumping double double teaming picks or jumping the mic, you know I think you're going to see more pressure, and I think that's going to be really fun for the game too. But that will also probably in turn cause you know teams to have to play more personnel as well. So. I'm excited. And I think that lacrosse players should be excited as well, because ultimately, you know, like I said, I think that the opportunities are going to increase for them just because there's going to be more. No doubt. Um, you, you and I spoke before this uh, podcast, we were talking about some topics and you brought one up. That's really interesting. What, what is the NCAA transfer portal? And you brought it up to me. Why is it going to be impactful? And what is it? Yeah, so the NCAA Transfer Portal was instituted in October and uh, of 2018, and it's essentially a website that um, if you're a player, you can request from your compliance office uh, that you, it's not receiving your release. Technically, you can be input into the Transfer Portal and remain a member of your team, but it notifies every coach in the NCAA um, of all sports. So, like, you know, if you're a NCAA lacrosse coach, you see Jalen Hurts is in the, the, the portal. Like you have access to Jalen Hurts' email address if you want to send him a message. Um, but for lacrosse purposes, obviously, it means that, all right, well, now I know that this kid is at least interested in uh, entertaining offers for other opportunities. Um, you don't know what his grades are. You don't know what his financial situation is or hers. Um, but you can reach out and express interest and say, hey, we're familiar with you and your game. We think you'd be a good fit on our team. What do you think? Are you interested in our institution? And, uh, and so it's totally flipped the power dynamic of players interested in leaving their schools. Previously, you essentially had to receive your release, which almost always correlated to the end of your time at that, space, at that school. Um, and then you needed to find out whether or not there was a market for you. Um, this is, uh, this has removed that. Now, obviously, um, it's still, if you request to have your name included in the transfer portal, depending on your, um, situation with your coach and the conversation that you've had, it can be a damaging thing. And the program does have, uh, the flexibility to end its, um, uh, scholarship for you at the end of that semester. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it's really, it's really changed, uh, again, like I said, the power dynamic in the, in the conversation and the relationship. And uh, because it's so new and because it was instituted after the typical time of year when um, athletes look around, uh, particularly lacrosse athletes, um, I don't expect it to be anything that's uh, very meaningful until mid-May. And that's when team seasons will have ended. Um, you know, players will have finished their finals. Athletes will have finished their finals, excuse me. And, uh, and you know, guys, will start, guys and girls will start to wonder whether or not they're in their the best fit and best home. And, uh, and so they'll, they'll start to explore. And, you know, ultimately, I, I don't really know what it's going to mean for the, the structure, you know, the, the top 20, who, who's good, who's not. Um, I, think it, I think coupled with the, uh, the two factors of the change in the recruiting timeline and the addition of new programs, 
um, you know, it's just going to continue to affect the power balance. Um, you know, teams that programs that have been successful and uh, and consistent in taking in transfers are probably going to be really excited about the opportunity to uh, more effectively know um, who's interested. But on the other hand, it really levels the playing field. If one of your assets, if one of your program assets was you were really good gossipers and you knew who was looking around, well, and then you could get to him first, you know, that was, that was a good thing. You're not really going to, you're not really going to get that anymore. Um, you know, everybody's going to be kind of, no, everybody who monitors the portal is going to be notified at the same time that this player is interested in a change of scenery. And so, um, you know, I, I think, again, like the rules, there's a lot to be determined and it's really interesting. Um, but I think it's something that not a lot of people know about. And, uh, you know, that's why. Ty Zanders wrote a story that's on the front page inside lacrosse.com uh, that folks should check out for more. It also includes, you know, a list of all the lacrosse players that are currently in the portal as well. So very, very interesting read. Um, okay, so last topic here, Terry. Um, we had talked in our, in our pre-podcast meeting about the concept of the, that you brought up of the professionalization of coaching. Um, and I'm curious to hear your opinions on that. And I know you said you had a couple of questions for me as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, you know, so I mentioned earlier that the perception and in my opinion, the reality is that college cross is the pinnacle of the sport. And what that means is that college cross coaches are incredibly powerful stakeholders within the sport. And uh, the, the sport has gotten more popular. Um, they've started to get paid better. Um, the structure of their employment has changed. Most of them are on contracts. Uh, the, the increased uh, prevalence of representation uh, has, has had a meaningful effect um, and will continue to drive uh, how beneficial, how good of a job being a college coach is. Um, and, uh, you know, the professional, the professional organization, right? So the coaches associations on the men's and women's side um, are, are, you know, we saw with the way in which the Women's Coaches Association led the process of changing the recruiting rules, um, you know, they have incredible power. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that um, it's interesting because uh, that's why, right? Like that's why the stakes are there. But the question I, I have that you're trying to answer is the how, like, how do you get better? And that was the thing about the social media promotion of the virtual cross summit that interested me the most is that you had tapped these folks to share their knowledge and not only did people really consume it, but there was also a, 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 like, they were so excited to share their friends, you know, like message, if that makes any sense. And so I guess what I'm interested in from your perspective is as someone who's been in, you know, you've been in, in and around college coaching for 30 years, 20 some, 20. Yeah, well, I was college coach for 20 years and it's been 10 years since. Yeah, so there you go. And now, you know, you're, you've got an eye on helping coaches become better coaches. So I don't, you know, so, so we have a little bit of the why and the how and what it means. Um, but I'm interested in your thoughts on, on like, like, what does it mean for the sport and how does it move forward? Because, you know, again, I, I think that these, these young professionals are, uh, to put it tritely, like they're the future. They're going to be the ones who dictate, you know, what happens on the women's side it's been incredibly impressive how fast they've moved. And I think a lot of it is attributed to folks like Jenna Adams, who just, I don't know, like they had, they had the, on one hand, the gall to confront the status quo. And on the other hand, the political moxie to navigate it and, and bring it about it effectively. It's one thing to just be a rabble rouser and be in the room with 300 of your colleagues and say, this sucks. We need to change it. 
it's another thing to be able to be smart enough to say, this is not the way, this is not the best possible way. This is how we could do it better. Let's do it this way. And I just see an increasing percentage and amount of folks who want to do that and haven't on the men's side been able to do it as effectively as I think we're going to see happen over the course of the next five years. That's my thesis. And that was kind of the part that I was interested in your reaction to. Well, I mean, the professionalization of lacrosse has been massive. I mean, when I took my first coaching job at Colorado college, I got paid $2,000 and lived in the head coach's Steve Bevel's house. And, uh, and you by the know, way, great guy. It needs awesome. to be said every time Steve, every time Steve Bevel's name comes up, you got to say that he's one of the best. Truly is. I mean, just an unbelievable guy. Um, and it was a great year for me to learn lacrosse. Um, and then, and then it was like, okay, well, you know, our, we, we finished, actually, we had the, one of the best seasons they ever had, actually, beat Air Force twice that year in 1990, won the uh, Rocky Mountain Championship. And then it's like May 5th, and, you know, I'm off. And I was like, okay, well, I'm either going to coach at uh, – I'm going to try to coach at a higher level and try to get into Division One, or I'm going to actually, you know, ski like I was going to do um, when I went to Colorado. Instead, I coached, and it was a great experience, but I wanted to either take either the skiing or the coaching to a higher level. So – I went um, back to Providence, Rhode Island, where I'm from, and really hoped to find a uh, to find a coaching job, and I, I just didn't. And it wasn't until the following December that the Yale job opened up, and I took that as the first assistant for Mike Waldvogel, and I got paid ten thousand dollars for the year. And eight year, you know, in year eight, I was only getting paid like eighteen thousand dollars. Okay, I mean, it was like not. I mean, you talk about the professionalization of it in the '90s. You were doing this. 1000% because you love to coach. Um, now you can look at kids uh, coming up that want to be coaches and you can actually like foresee a time when you could make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars just from your salary. Uh, when I took the job at Denver, it was for $31,000 when I was 31 years old in 1999. It was, it was, again, it was just like everything was still really, really small time. And all of this, this period of change that we talked about these golden eras, you know, because of the gates and all that, the game got popularized and probably made me want to do it. And then in the 2004, you know, stadium, the game really started to grow. There, there became parity in around 2003, 2004, 2005. You know, Denver, we knocked off number one Virginia that year. And it was an Air Force did too. And all of a sudden, every year there was just more. And so the, the salaries did go up. Um, and then with the game has grown so much that there's so much more money in the game. So now you look at the professionalization of all of this stuff and the power of the coaches' organizations. I mean, I think that, that what the women did to really get the recruiting rules uh, straightened out um, was amazing. And it's, it's not easy to do because you got to remember that, like, in men's lacrosse, you'd have all these different people that want different things, and it was always relative to what was best for them. So, you know, the, the guys, you know, everybody is – you know, in this coaching fraternity and they're in this coaches organization, but at the end of the day, they work for their institution and they report to their, you know, athletic director and they follow the institutional rules and NCA rules and that's it. And so um, I, it was really hard to get stuff done. So, you know, kudos to the women for doing that because they actually just cut through all of the politics and BS and just got it done. And everybody knows it was the right thing to do. Um, now, where does it go from here? You know, I mean, clearly the IMLCA is doing an amazing job of cranking up their own uh, abilities to run events, uh, which I think is difficult too, because you, sometimes it competes with the actual events of the college coaches. 
Uh, but they've also done a great job of, of, of running their convention and digitizing it. Um, and so, and then back to your point of, you know, the lacrosse virtual summit that, um, that we ran last this week where I did 25 webinars in a matter of four days, which is crazy. It just taps into the passion that everybody has for lacrosse and the desire to build their own brands and their own in their own schools. I mean, like, you know, when I was you know trying to build the Denver brand, all I wanted to do was get out in front of anybody and everybody I could and show them who I was and what we were doing, knowing that like, if it tipped the scales on one person, you know, it would be worth it. And likewise, when I started 3D lacrosse and I started working with you guys, it was like any exposure I could get from IL or anybody else was going to be massive. And I, I think that now that we're looking at this, really a golden era of digital media, I think that, you know, people are going to tap into this. And I think that's what's going to kind of help with the overall professionalization of everything. But I'm not sure if I really answered your question very well, but it was a little bit of a, you know, uh, a chronology of kind of how it's gone. No, it was really interesting. I'm sure our audience is going to be uh, really, really fascinated by those dollar amounts because it's shocking. I think for a lot of people to hear and consider that relative to, you know, the numbers that leak out and people kind of assume, I think everybody has access to, and it's just not the case. It's still not the case. And that's the thing, you know, how many of your, how many of your, your summit panelists are at that early stage, right? And they're trying to you know, get to the point that you're describing. And, and it's helpful to know that the ceiling is higher than it was, I think, when oh. you, you know, were making that commitment in 1990. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's funny, like, I'm sure that there are a lot of folks listening to this as well who are saying, like, basically everything we've gone over over the last hour is interesting, but it's not all good, right? Like, there are folks who, you know, cherish the way the sport had been and was established. And, um, you know, I, I have some measure of, I don't want to say empathy, but understanding of that point. Uh, but I can't, I can't get too far behind it because for me, um, you know, it's just, this is, the, this is progress. This is what, yeah, this is it, right? This is the reason we're having this conversation is because everything that has happened has happened partly as a result of a conversation like this that happened at some point on some point in time. So, um, I don't know, man. It's exciting. And I'm really happy that we were able to go over it. Awesome. Me too. Well, Terry, thank you so much for sharing all your insights and, and insider knowledge. You guys uh, call yourselves at Inside the Cross, the source of the game. And you truly are. Um, you know so much. And I'm really, uh, really appreciative of your time. So uh, I will see you hopefully in a couple of weeks when I'm on my, my lacrosse tour. Um, yeah, your road trip. I'm going to swing by uh, the IL offices the morning, Tuesday, the 29th, before I head down to Navy. But, That's right. Uh, and we're going to get well, you on the Inside the Cross podcast. People are going to have to look forward to listening to that. <laughs> exactly. Hey, have a great day, man. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks, Jamie. Yep. See ya. The Philocrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son must utilize video to learn his game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com.